Welcome to the Written by Rich Hosick podcast presentation of Near Death, A Rainy Day Investigation. I was inspired to record this audio version of the book by an author named Scott Sigler, who records his own books and makes them available to his fans. It sounded like a great way to establish a more personal relationship with my readers. I always enjoyed reading aloud to my son when he was younger, and I'm a big fan of audiobooks myself, so I thought I'd give it a try. This story was first put to paper decades ago when I started collaborating with Arnold Rudnick. It started life as an idea for a television series, he and Lloyd Auerbach, the parapsychologist who serves as the co-author, consultant, and inspiration for much of the book and even one of the lead characters, Jennifer Day. Arnold and Lloyd called their creation Psychops. I wasn't a fan of that title. And as we worked on the screenplay version of the concept, we made two major changes. First, the parapsychologist of the investigative duo became a woman. The police detective was called Nate Rainey, and we gave his partner the name Jennifer Day, and so was born Rainey and Day. The script made the rounds, but producers seemed reluctant to take on something in the paranormal genre. Then the X-Files came out, and we were suddenly too similar to something already on the air. But the story was always one I felt had more of a life to it. We would show it around from time to time and got a lot of compliments on the writing, but it remained in the proverbial drawer. A few years ago, I started turning my writing efforts to short stories and novels. And in the course of coming up with projects to work on, the story from the Rainy and Day screenplay came to mind. I asked Arnold and Lloyd if they'd be interested in bringing it to life as a book. I didn't want to do it without their participation, and I was happy they were as excited to resurrect their story as much as I was. I'm very proud of the end result. Nate Rainey and Jennifer Day are like old friends you knew a long time ago and finally reconnected with. We've gotten great reviews and have several more stories in the work, so I hope you enjoy listening to this audio version and keep an eye or an ear out for the next rainy day investigation. Thank you for listening. Near Death, A Rainy Day Investigation By Rich Hosek, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach Read by Rich Hosek Prologue San Francisco, 1958 Luther Laramie looked down at Sarah Montgomery's lifeless body. She was laid out before him, her head nearly severed and deep gashes cut into her chest, shoulder, and hip. Blood clung to her naked form like a skin-tight scarlet dress. The axe dropped from Luther's hand. It made a loud thunk when its head hit the hardwood floor. The handle smacked into the growing pool surrounding Sarah's body and a splash of crimson sprayed across his shoes. He kneeled, oblivious to the blood, and stroked Sarah's lifeless cheek. Her dead stare looked past him as his own eyes started to tear. Luther sucked in a breath, his body now shaking with sobs. He lifted her head and cradled it against his chest. A low moan escaped his lips. Then he raised his head and howled. How could this have happened? he asked himself. He caressed Sarah's hair, that dark brown, almost black mane, so soft, now matted and soaked with blood. His dreams of someday marrying her were cut short, just like her young life. A siren wailed in the distance. Luther gently laid Sarah back down on the floor. He stepped to the window overlooking the street. A police car, its lights flashing, raced down the dark streets toward the building. Two more approached from the opposite direction. Were they coming here? Had someone heard what happened in Sarah's apartment and phoned the police? Luther looked down at his hands and clothes. They were covered in Sarah's blood. He didn't want to think what they would do if they found him like this. The deaths of the other girls by the hands of the killer known in the papers as the Axeman had created a vigilante mood in the city. 
He knew if anyone connected those heinous crimes to him, there would be no trial. It would end in the streets. He headed for the front door, stopping at the chair where he'd left his fireman's turnout coat. He didn't have a cold-weather jacket of his own, and often borrowed the heavy garment from his locker at the firehouse on cold, wet nights like this one. He slipped it on. It hung almost down to his knees, and the sleeves covered most of his hands. If no one looked at him closely, didn't see his blood-spattered shoes, he might be able to make it out unnoticed. Luther opened the apartment door and peeked out into the hallway. It was empty. He walked quickly but quietly down the hall to the stairwell, opened the door, and slipped inside. The door across from Sarah's apartment opened, and a young blonde woman peeked out. She looked across at Sarah's door, then down the hallway to where she noticed the stairwell door closed with a gentle click. She seemed puzzled, almost curious, and stepped across the hall toward Sarah's door. The blue light from the police cars outside flashed through the window at the end of the hallway between the two apartments. She glanced down at the gathering police cars and decided to retreat back to her own apartment. Whatever was going on, she was going to leave it to the police to sort out. Luther took the stairs two at a time, hanging onto the railing, oblivious to the trail of blood smears he left behind. He made it to the ground floor and opened the lobby door enough to peek out from behind it. There was a policeman in front of the elevator speaking to the old janitor, Schotensack. Sarah had often told him how kind and helpful the building superintendent was. He had been working at the Oakley Arms since it was built after the Great Quake. The old man was in his seventies now and probably knew every nook and cranny of this place like the back of his hand. Luther decided to take a chance and see if he could slip past the two men. Just an off-duty fireman heading off to start a shift, if anyone asked. The police and fire departments had a good relationship. They would afford him professional courtesy without any cause for suspicion. Luther turned up the collar of his coat, pulled his hands up into the sleeves, then strode purposefully toward the front door. There was a growing crowd of police outside. As he passed the elevators, the old man caught his eye. "'Good evening, Mr. Schotensack,' Luther said. "'How are you tonight?' "'Right as rain and feeling no pain,' the old man answered. The policeman gave Luther a curious glance. He saw his jacket and offered a deferential nod. "'Be safe out there,' policeman said. "'You too,' Luther said, and nodded back. As Luther continued toward the entrance, the front doors opened and a group of policemen entered. Luther stepped to the side to let them by. They seemed on a mission, and a fireman passing by wasn't worthy of their notice. He offered them a friendly nod, and some of them nodded back. But one cop, the youngest of the bunch, a rookie in his freshly issued blues, reached into his pocket for his notepad. Jostled by another officer, he dropped it to the floor and bent down to pick it up as Luther passed. The rookie's eyes were drawn to the still glistening drops of blood on the fireman's shoes. The cop stood up, and his and Luther's eyes met. Come on, Rainey, let's get a move on. I want you and Kendall to secure the stairwell, ordered the detective in charge. Officer William Rainey kept his eyes on Luther. He let the notepad slip out of his hand, then slowly reached for his revolver. The other policemen noticed Rainey's subtle movements and shifted their attention to the fireman. Luther looked to the front door, just ten feet away. There was now a crowd of a dozen or more police officers and nearly as many cars with their lights flashing. Mister, you mind putting your hands up? Rainey asked. Sure, Luther said, as he slowly raised his arms, careful to keep his hands in his sleeves. He nodded outside. You mind telling me what's going on? Turn around and put your hands behind your back, slowly, Rainey ordered. Luther saw no way out. His mind raced. Did he even care now that Sarah was dead? Did anything else matter? 
He spun around and slowly lowered his hands and placed them behind his back. The detective and other policemen relaxed, seeing that Luther was cooperating. What you got there, son? The detective asked Officer Rainey. I think there's blood on his shoes, the nervous rookie replied. He grabbed the handcuffs from their case on the back of his belt and reached for Luther's hand. He hesitated when he saw that it, too, was covered in dark, sticky blood. Luther sensed the hesitation in the young officer's actions. He grabbed Rainey's hand and twisted it around, forcing the young cop to his knees, then let go of the stunned officer's wrist and ran straight toward the detective and the other officers. Surprise slowed their reactions. Some reached for their guns. Others tried to grab the fireman. Instinct drilled into Luther from his days as a running back on his high school football team kicked in. He threw a shoulder at one man, taking out two others like human bowling pins. Then he spun around past another two and raced through the lobby, past the elevators, and back to the stairwell door. Shots rang out, and bullets slammed into the wall in front of him. None of them hit Luther. He pushed open the door and started bounding up the steps. His experience as a fireman allowed him to race easily up the stairs, but to where? Back to Sarah's apartment? Ended all there? The building was surrounded by now. It was just a matter of time. But maybe there was a chance he could get out of this. He raced on past the tenth floor where Sarah's apartment was and up toward the roof. In the building lobby, the detective helped Officer Rainey to his feet. What did you see, son? There was blood on his shoes and hands, a lot of it. When I went to put the cuffs on, he took me by surprise. I'm sorry, sir. I let you down. Nah, you did good. He didn't get out of the building. That was all you. There's no way out now. It's him, sir, isn't it? The axe man? The older detective nodded. Gotta be. Officer Rainey couldn't help but notice the older detective's suit. It was remarkably clean and pressed for someone who had either been working all day or had been called in from his home in the middle of the night. The detective noticed the younger policeman's gaze. Always wear a good suit and a fresh shirt. Everyone respects a man who dresses well. Yes, sir, Rainey answered accepting the advice from the detective like an eager student. Come on, the other detective said. You're with me. The detective marched toward the elevators where the rest of the police were gathering. He pointed at a couple other uniformed officers and motioned for them to follow as he barked commands to the rest of the growing crowd. All right, listen up. This is our man. 5'10", 170, brown hair, last seen wearing a fireman's coat. I want units on every floor at the elevators and the stairwells and fire escapes. No one comes in or out of this building unless they have a badge. All civilians are to remain in their apartments. If they don't comply, cuff them to their radiators. If you see the suspect, do not let him get away. Use whatever force is necessary to capture him, dead or alive. The officers all nodded. The detective, Officer Rainey, and the two other policemen headed toward the stairwell door. They burst through, guns drawn, but Luther was nowhere in sight. Rainey pointed to the blood smears on the handrail. Okay, boys, heads up. Nothing more dangerous than a cornered animal. The detective led the way up the stairs. As they reached each landing, the detective swung the door open quickly as the rest of them trained their guns on the hallways. On the second and third floors, the detective ordered one of the uniformed officers to take a post at the door. By the time they reached the fourth floor, there were guards already stationed at the elevators and the stairwell door. They continued that way, methodically sealing off each floor as they reached it until they arrived at a heavy door marked Roof Access. The detective checked the door. It was unlocked. He turned back to Officer Rainey. Did you get a chance to pat him down? Did he appear to have a gun? I didn't, but... But what? Well, he's the Axeman. Why would he carry a gun? Son, never take anything for granted. As far as you know, he had a Tommy gun and half a dozen grenades under that coat. Got it? Yes, sir. 
All right, stay in sight, follow my directions. I'm ready, sir. The detective drew his gun, then silently counted to three with the fingers of his free hand and opened the door to the roof. Officer Rainey held his weapon out, ready to fire if Luther came at them. A quick sweep told them there was no one on the roof, or at least the part of it they could see. The stairs came up out of a small, raised room tacked onto the roof. It looked like some residents had set up private gardens, though nothing was growing except wilted weeds. The detective stepped through the doorway, leading with his gun. He eased slowly around the corner, then motioned for Rainey to stand and guard at the door while he looked around. A drop of water splashed onto Officer Rainey's cheek. He looked up and saw dark, menacing clouds ready to let loose at any moment. A gust of wind swept across the roof, blew into the stairwell entrance, and slammed the metal door against the wall with a loud bang. A couple of pigeons who had settled in for the night under a table took off with a flurry of wings. Officer Rainey instinctively swung his gun around toward the commotion. There was a flash of lightning. For a moment, the rookie thought he saw Luther standing on the edge of the roof. But the lightning must have played some sort of trick on his eyes, because to Officer Rainey, it looked like he could see right through him. Don't move, the young policeman ordered. In the next flash of lightning, there was nothing. The roof was empty. Did you see him? The detective asked. Over there, sir. I saw something. The rest of the roof is clear. Remember what I told you. Assume he's armed and dangerous and knows you're coming. Rainey nodded. They proceeded to the far end of the roof where it abutted another building that was four or five stories shorter. As they walked, they checked behind each raised flower bed, cleared each table and chair. Rainey noticed the older officer keeping the stairwell entrance in his peripheral vision. They reached the end of the roof. Maybe he didn't come up here after all, Officer Rainey suggested. We have this building locked down. Nowhere else he could be. Officer Rainey looked out over the city. Another flash of lightning lit up the sky. Something caught his attention out of the corner of his eye. Something below them. He peered over the edge and thought he saw a shape on the adjacent roof four stories below. Detective, I think there's something down there, he said. The detective looked down. Give me your flashlight, he ordered. Rainey pulled a long, bulky flashlight off his belt and handed it to the detective. He switched it on and cast the beam down to the neighboring rooftop. A low rumble of thunder rolled by. In the beam of the flashlight was the twisted and lifeless body of Luther Laramie. It started to rain. Chapter 1. Present Day It started to rain. Dr. Jennifer Day guided her Volkswagen bus through the steep and narrow streets of the city. She was an attractive woman in her mid-thirties, her blonde hair pulled back. She wore a vintage raincoat over a dark turtleneck sweater. Around her neck hung a gold chain with a pendant in the shape of the Greek letter Psi. Tweed slacks and a pair of red vans completed her outfit, giving her a decidedly bohemian look. "'Are we there yet?' asked the younger man in the passenger seat. Dave Edwards was a graduate student, and Dr. Day was his thesis advisor. He found her interesting and brilliant, an expert in his chosen major of anthropology. But she also expected him to help her with research that fell outside the traditional bounds of the field. He discovered to his frequent dismay that those duties included accompanying her on midnight outings to run down parts of the city. Allegedly, she answered, nodding at the navigation app on the phone attached to the dashboard, there should be a big sign out front. It's not like we're looking for some hole-in-the-wall video rental shop. It's the Palace Theater. It's an architectural landmark. The rain picked up. The minibus's headlights had trouble piercing the veil of water pouring down from the sky. Jennifer slowed down, scanning the buildings lining the street while keeping one eye on the road. 
Yeah, well, everything is just another wet gray building in this weather, Dave complained. Wait, there it is, he said suddenly, pointing to a building with a large, unlit sign with the name Palace spelled vertically sticking out over the sidewalk. We're supposed to go around to the rear entrance. Do you see an alley or something? Jennifer asked. You have arrived, the app informed her. Yes, I know we're here, she said to the phone, but I want the back door. She plucked the phone out of its mount and shoved it into a pocket. I think there's an opening up there, Dave said, pointing down the street. I see it, Jennifer said. She drove up to a narrow alley between the theater and an office building. It's too narrow, Dave warned. I've got it, she insisted. They made a sharp turn into the alley. The passageway was clearly created before the widespread use of cars and trucks. A narrow horse-drawn cart might easily fit through the gap, but Jennifer's minibus had barely enough room to squeeze by. See, told you, Jennifer said. What if you need to back out? Dave asked. You're always such a downer, Dave. Why can't you be more like Emily? Here's an idea. Next time, take Emily with you. She's only an undergrad. I need graduate-level help for this one. Dave sighed. This was a conversation he'd had many times, and one he was not eager to repeat, because at the end of it, he usually ended up doing even more of what he was complaining about. He sucked in a breath as they passed a carriage light hanging off one wall that nearly scraped the window on the passenger side. The narrow alley opened up into a loading dock area that the theater and other buildings on the street backed up to. There were a couple cars parked here and there and a large panel van. See, Jennifer said, that truck made it through. Dave pointed to a large, well-lit opening between the buildings on the opposite side of the parking lot. Ah, that makes all kinds of sense. She steered the VW to a spot near a door marked stage entrance and parked. From a deep pocket, she pulled a rumpled paper sack and dumped out a handful of candy corn. She offered the bag to Dave. He peered inside and shook his head. Suit yourself. Get the gear, she said to Dave. Of course, that graduate-level task of getting the gear. So glad I'm here. Dave got up and worked his way to the back of the minibus to gather the equipment. Jennifer retrieved a compact umbrella from another of the raincoat's pockets and opened the door a crack. She pushed the umbrella out through the opening, pressed the button on the handle, and it shot out into a bright red dome that matched her shoes. She opened the door the rest of the way and stepped out. Her canvas sneakers were of little protection against the water gathering in the alley, but she didn't seem to mind, and soon even the high cuffs of her pants were soaked as well. With a scientist's eye, Jennifer looked around the area behind the theater. The alley was paved with cobblestones, even though many of the buildings surrounding the theater superseded them by decades. She sniffed the air, searching for some telltale scent underneath the smell of the rain. The rear of the building was constructed from rough bricks, a material that saved money on construction which was lavished on the front facade of the building and in the lobby, she presumed. Her fingers reached out and brushed the wet stone, stroking the bumps and crevices like a blind person reading Braille. She looked up. The rear of the building was mostly featureless, a few small windows here and there, and vents jutting out at odd locations, modern add-ons, obviously not part of the original architecture. She walked along the wall toward the stage door, her fingers tracing the mortar lines between the bricks. In her mind's eye, she pictured fans and reporters gathered around the stage door, dressed in suits and evening gowns, everyone wearing hats. She wished people would wear hats more, not the backward baseball caps that were popular among the kids on campus, but fedoras and bonnets adorned with feathers and bows. She was definitely born in the wrong century. Can I get a hand back here? Dave shouted. Jennifer turned toward the VW and danced between the growing puddles until she made it around to the back of the minibus. Dave was struggling to close the doors of the vehicle while holding a large case in each hand and a smaller one tucked under his left arm. He had on a yellow rubber raincoat with the hood pulled up over his prematurely balding head. His feet were clad in thick rubber galoshes. 
I got it, Jennifer said and swung the door shut. Dave turned to offer her the case under his arm, but Jennifer either didn't see his gesture, or, more likely, ignored it and started leaping her way back over the puddles to the stage door. You know, if you invested in a decent pair of boots, you wouldn't have to worry about getting your feet wet, he said. Then took a step into the nearest puddle and almost dropped all the cases as he found himself with one leg knee-deep in a water-filled hole. His face registered the shock his body felt as his waterproof boot filled with icy water. A little help? he asked feebly, knowing that even if Dr. Day did hear him, she would assess his situation as manageable and leave him to fend for himself. He lifted his foot out of the hole, got a firm grip on the cases, and followed after her. Jennifer pounded on the old steel-clad door. Dave waited while the rain smashed against his raincoat. Jennifer checked her watch. He said he would meet us at one. Sure we have the right building? Dave asked sarcastically. The door swung open, revealing a short, bald man, wire room glasses perched on a nose that was too small, and anchored by ears that were too large. He was dressed in a suit that had seen more years than Jennifer and Dave put together. A bow tie cinched his neatly pressed collar close to the loose flesh at his neck. He regarded the professor and her assistant suspiciously. Can I help you? Jennifer raised her eyebrows in surprise. I'm Dr. Day, the parapsychologist from the university. You? He said. I spoke to a man. That was me, Dave said. Do you mind if we come in? It's really rainy out here. Hmm, he considered. All right, try not to get everything wet. He stepped aside and held the door open while Jennifer entered, collapsed her umbrella, shook it out, and returned it to her pocket. Dave followed, dropped the cases, then turned back to the door where he removed one boot and emptied it out onto the rain-soaked cobblestones. Once they were safely inside, the old man closed the door against the storm and took on a completely different air. "'Welcome to the Palace Theatre,' he said with a slight bow. "'I am Victor Nagel, manager.' He extended his hand to Jennifer. "'Jennifer Day, pleased to meet you.' she said, shaking his hand. His grip was firm yet gentle. Then he extended his hand to Dave. Victor Nagel, he repeated. Dave Edwards, thanks for letting us in, Dave said, grateful to be out of the rain at last. My apologies for the late hour, Victor continued. It's all right, we're used to working the graveyard shift, Jennifer said. Dave rolled his eyes at her joke, adding a tick to his mental tally of how many times she'd used it. I didn't want word to get out that the palace was, you know, haunted. It's hard enough to get people in the doors as it is. They'd rather watch movies on those tiny phones instead of the silver screen. I know, Jennifer agreed. You can't expect to take in the full glory of Casablanca on a six-inch rectangle. Oh, it pains me just to think about it, the old man said, putting a hand to his heart. I like watching movies on my phone, Dave said. Jennifer and Victor both gave him a reproachful glance. You'll have to excuse Dave. He may lack an appreciation for the cultural masterpieces of the past, but he can be useful. Victor considered her words regarding Dave suspiciously. Yes, I do find children today to lack a degree of respect for their elders. I'm 25, Dave responded. Not really a child anymore. That's to be determined. He winked conspiratorially at Jennifer and she grinned back. So, how does this work? You put on those Raygun backpacks and capture whatever ghost has decided to make me miserable in my waning days? Let me tell you, when I die, I'm not sticking around. That's a shame you'd make a really annoying ghost, Dave remarked offhandedly. Jennifer shot Dave a look. Her usual playful expression was gone, replaced now with disappointment and admonishment. Dave turned to Victor. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. I get cranky when I get tired, and I'm not only tired, I'm very cold and wet. My apologies. For you, I might make an exception and follow you around singing Henry VIII, Victor replied. 
Jennifer smiled. Nice ghost reference. Thank you. I may manage a classic cinema theater, but I do appreciate the modern films as well. That movie's like 30 years old, Dave remarked. Jennifer ignored him. Well, we don't actually do things the same way they did in Ghostbusters with proton packs and electronic traps. You know, I didn't think the remake got as much appreciation as it deserved, commented Victor. I agree, said Jennifer. Dave yawned. He had the two larger cases on the floor already opened up. Each had a foam lining that had cutouts for a variety of devices as well as tripods and battery packs. The smaller case contained a laptop computer. The graduate assistant turned it on and began syncing the various devices to data widgets on the screen. Not to disappoint you, but chances are you don't even have a ghost. Most of the situations we investigate turn out to have rather mundane and ordinary explanations, Jennifer explained. Well, I've never seen anything like this before, except maybe on the big screen. We'll take a look around, get some readings, and if we find any indications of unusual activity, we'll set up some recording gear and see if we can verify that you do have something paranormal going on here. Dave handed Jennifer a device that looked like a short pole with a pistol grip and a variety of different shaped protuberances along its length. Some were spheres, others cones. One on the end looked like a miniature satellite dish. Jennifer flicked a switch at its base, and a series of LEDs along the top lit up in sequence, flashed, and settled into a steady yellow glow. She pulled out her phone and opened up an app. The screen told her it was attempting to pair, then displayed a success message, and the LEDs shifted in color to green. Dave was wearing a harness adorned with a variety of sensors. He had a body cam clipped to one strap, an omnidirectional mic on his shoulder, and two cameras with bulky lenses slung around his neck, one film, the other digital. Ready, he declared. Victor regarded him with deserved disdain and smiled at Jennifer. Where would you like to begin? Jennifer glanced around and spotted a dark stairway. What's down there? Used to be dressing rooms back in the days when they did live shows here. Just storage now. Come, I'll show you. Victor led them down the stairs to a dimly lit hallway that had a dozen doors along its length on either side and at regular intervals. There was a faded star painted on the nearest one. Oh, the names that graced these doors. Mae West, Eddie Foy, Will Rogers, Bob Hope, Fanny Bryce. My father came here when he was a boy. And the big stars moved to the big screen and the days of vaudeville were over. We used to come here for double features on Sundays. I got my first job tearing tickets at the door. Jeez, how old are you? Dave asked. Jennifer elbowed Dave in the side. I'll be 98 this year, Victor said. Going to make it to 100, just like George Burns. He played here, too. Jennifer checked the screen on her phone while she slowly swung her device around. Anything? Dave asked. Not yet. She reached out and pushed open the door to the nearest dressing room. She took a compact flashlight from one of her pockets and flicked it on. The beam illuminated a collection of furniture, broken-down concessions equipment, posters, cardboard stand-ups from blockbuster movies, and racks of Usher uniforms. Just storage in here. People tell me I could get a lot of money for some of this stuff on Ebby. eBay, Dave corrected. Hmm, yes, well, I'm not quite ready to part with it, but it may come to that soon. Jennifer's flashlight continued exploring the dusty memorabilia. She stopped, her eyes widened, and she screamed. Dave snatched up one of the cameras on instinct and started snapping photos of the inside of the crowded dressing room. Victor leaned against the wall, clutching one hand to his heart. What is it? What did you see? Dave asked, suddenly wide awake. Oh my god, she exclaimed, then pushed her way into the room to a corner where a framed poster was hidden behind a cardboard cutout of Clint Eastwood from one of his spaghetti westerns. She pulled it aside and shined the light on the piercing eyes and distinctive haircut of Harry Houdini. My dear, Victor said weakly. I did mention I wanted to make it to 100, didn't I? It's Houdini, she said, as if it explained everything. 
Yes, yes, he played here many times. They had to reinforce the stage to accommodate his water tank. How much do you want for it? Get rid of my ghost and it's yours, Victor answered. Deal. Come on, Dave. We have to check out all these rooms down here. I expected nothing less, he sighed. Jennifer led Dave on a meticulous examination of the dressing rooms. Victor informed them that he would be making tea in his office. Then he excused himself and made his way back up the stairs. What do you think? Dave asked. I think there's a lot of great stuff down here. You know what I mean. The guy is pretty old. Could just be dementia. I doubt it. He has a very sharp memory. No problems expressing himself. I'd say he has another good decade left. And if he claims there's something strange going on here, I'm inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt. Okay, but is it a haunting? Jennifer shrugged. Look around you. A lot of history inside these walls. A lot of drama, emotion. Probably a good number of deaths as well. You always have the cheeriest thoughts, Dave chided. She smiled. Nothing like a good murder to leave a psycho-emotional imprint on a place. They continued on, Jennifer leading the way with her sensors, indicating with her flashlight what she wanted Dave to photograph. When they completed the survey, Jennifer sighed, disappointed. Well, nothing down here. Let's go get a cup of tea. Jennifer and Dave found Victor's office with no trouble. The manager had a formal Wedgwood service. He served Jennifer and Dave hot cups of tea. So, did you find any ghosts in my basement? Victor asked. No, but there were a few lobby cards I may add to the bill, Jennifer said. What kind of disturbances have you experienced down there? In the basement? None, Victor said. Then why did you take us down there? Dave asked. Victor looked to Jennifer with a smile. She asked. He's right, I did, Jennifer confessed. I can never pass up a good basement. What a waste of time. Hardly. That Houdini poster is going to look awesome in my office. Yeah, I'm guessing it's a graduate-level task to get it from that dressing room back to the university. Dave muttered regrets under his breath while he sipped his tea. So, Victor, where exactly have you encountered your ghost? He glanced around the office. In here. Up in the projection room. In the theater itself. Did you see anything? Victor shook his head. Sometimes it's just an uneasy feeling. Other times things move on their own. Pictures fall off the wall. Poltergeist? Dave asked. Too soon to tell, Jennifer answered. This tea is wonderful. Ceylon Sonata? You know your teas, Victor said impressed. I worked as a nanny for a British family in college, but I never made tea this good. The secret is to use spring water. The secret is to use spring water. The minerals bring out the flavor. They do indeed. She set her cup down. Shall we check out the projection room? The projection room was an obvious afterthought to a theater originally designed in vaudeville's heyday. There was an iron spiral staircase tucked in a corner of the theater that ended at a catwalk, connecting it to the projection room. Victor led them across the rickety walkway to the door and opened it. Inside were two enormous 70mm projectors that had been moved aside to make room for more economical 35mm machines. They came in pairs so that one reel could be projected while a second was queued up. A feature-length presentation came on five, six, or more reels. You run this yourself? Jennifer asked. I can barely afford to pay the kids at the ticket window and concession stand, let alone a projectionist. It's not hard, and I love doing it. Something about the sound of the projector clacking away that I find soothing. You know, if you want digital, you could... Dave stopped when he saw the reaction to suggestion created on the faces of Jennifer and Victor. Never mind. Jennifer's face shifted from disdain to unease. Whoa, she said. Do you feel that? I didn't want to say anything, Victor admitted. I'm glad it's not just me. What? Dave asked, Then a feeling of nausea swept over him. Jennifer pulled out her sensor and tapped her phone awake. The screen was showing some sort of activity. 
Dave tapped her on the shoulder and pointed to a workbench, where a film canister slowly crept along the surface toward the edge. He grabbed one of the cameras, the digital one, and switched it to video mode and zoomed in on the can. It fell off and hit the ground with a clatter. Jennifer walked over and inspected the canister, waving the sensors over every surface. She set it back down on the floor, then pulled out her bag of candy corn and spread a few of them on the workbench. The colorful candy started to dance around. Interesting, she said. And then they stopped. Dave took a deep breath and realized his nausea had abruptly vanished. Jennifer turned to Victor. Where else did you say you've experienced this? In the lobby, at the concession stand, in the theater itself. Let's go, she said. They quickly walked out of the projection room and along the catwalk toward the spiral staircase. The lobby of the Palace Theater showed evidence of several makeovers, while retaining a grandiose quality missing from modern multi-screen cinemas. There were gold flourishes around every doorway and in every corner. The wallpaper had a textured pattern, and the red carpeting, though worn and stained, still gave the lobby an aura of luxury. This way, Victor said, leading them behind the popcorn counter. Jennifer found a container of unpopped popcorn kernels and spread a handful of them across the counter. She stared at them. Dave took this as his cue to start recording the scene. Nearly a minute later, their patience was rewarded. The kernel started sliding toward the edge of the counter. Jennifer let them drop into her hand, then consulted the screen of her phone. It showed a similar reading to what she registered in the projection room. It is a ghost, isn't it? Victor asked. It's following us. Dave looked around the lobby, a little creeped out. And the theater as well, you said? Jennifer asked. Yes, follow me. Victor led them out from behind the concession stand to the entrance to the auditorium. The space was cavernous and even more opulent than the lobby. A spectacular chandelier hung from the ceiling, which was adorned by a mural of angels and demons. Great velvet curtains hung from the walls. Jennifer started walking down the aisle toward the stage. The enormous screen lay unlit before her with the promise of brooding film noir or spectacular technicolor musicals. Over here, Victor said, directing them to the east wall of the theater. Jennifer followed him, glancing up at the intricately cast sconces and the delicate plaster cornices. She pulled out her phone, then checked her watch. She looked at Dave, then, with a mischievous smile, started counting down. In five, four, three, two... At the moment where she would have said one, Dave felt nauseated again. The chandelier rattled. A piece of plaster broke off from the wall and landed at Victor's feet. It's periodic, Jennifer announced excitedly. She pressed her ear against the wall and listened, her smile growing broader. What's next door? she asked. A delicatessen, Victor answered. Then, no, wait, they moved out. I think it's a laundry now. When did it change? About seven months ago. And when did you start noticing the disturbances? Victor thought for a moment. About six months ago. Jennifer stuffed her sensor and phone into her raincoat pockets and raced back to the aisle of the theater. Come on, she said to Dave and Victor. Follow me. She raced out of the auditorium. Dave started to follow, then noticed Victor was not even trying to move as fast as she was. Does she do this often? Victor asked. Oh yeah, it's a regular CrossFit class working for her. You go on, I'll catch up. You sure? I can help you. Thank you, young man, but I can manage. Go catch her. I'll be right behind. Dave nodded. He ran after Jennifer, holding onto his camera so they wouldn't bounce around. He reached the lobby just in time to see the front door close. He jogged across the red carpet, pushed open the door, and stepped out into the street. The rain had stopped, but the threat of its return hung heavy in the air. He looked down the street in one direction, then the other, and saw Jennifer pounding on the door to a neighboring business. He caught up to her just as a frazzled young man, tall and lean, entered the business's lobby from behind a curtain, followed by a hazy cloud of smoke. 
Dave spotted a marijuana pipe in his hand. This is going to be interesting, he said. We're closed, the attendant shouted from behind the counter. I know, Jennifer replied, but you have to let us in. It's a matter of life or death. A look of concern crossed the man's face. He considered for a moment, then decided to err on the side of caution and walked around the counter and let Jennifer and Dave into the laundry. What is it? Is someone hurt? Your machines. You do have machines here, don't you? Yeah, of course. Washing machines. We're laundry. I need to see them. Now. A panicked look crossed his face. What's wrong? That's what we're here to find out, Jennifer assured him. Okay, back here, he said, then disappeared behind the curtain. Dave waved away the remnants of the smoke cloud. Wow, think I'm getting a contact high. Don't judge, Jennifer admonished him. It could be medical. There was a knock on the outside door. Victor waved to them from the street. Let him in, Dave, Jennifer said. Dave crossed back to the front door and let Victor in. What's going on? he asked. I think Dr. Day's onto something. Come on, this way, Jennifer said, then disappeared behind the curtain. Dave and Victor followed. The back room was hot and steamy. Along the wall that the laundry shared with the theater, there was a bank of enormous washing machines, humming and spinning away. The young man patiently waited for more instructions. Do you have inspection certificates for these? Jennifer asked. I don't know. I can check in the office, he answered, exhaling another cloud of smoke with the words. Well, hurry up then. The man nodded and ambled away. Victor stopped and sniffed the air. What is that smell? he asked. Jennifer ignored his question and walked slowly past the machines. She noticed the mounting bracket on one of them was missing its bolts. Take a look at this, she said to Dave. He automatically started shooting photographs. Jennifer glanced at her watch. She held up her hand to silence her companions, and then did her countdown again. Five, four, three, two. The machine in front of her started a spin cycle. As it got faster and faster, Dave could feel the wave of nausea again, this time mitigated by the second-hand cannabis. No wonder the guy is hotboxing himself. Jennifer hit the red stop button on the machine and it quickly ground to a halt. The door popped open. Everyone felt immediately at ease. What was it? Dave asked. Infrasonic sounds, Jennifer explained. You can't hear them, but they jiggle your insides, among other things. She reached inside the washing machine, grabbed the sheet from inside, and draped it over her hand. I think we found your ghost, Victor. The laundry attendant emerged from the office with a framed certificate in hand. He saw the machine stopped and open. I couldn't find anything for the machines, but I found this old elevator inspection certificate. Jennifer took it and looked at it. Inspected by number 43. He's good. I don't think we have an elevator, he added. Does anyone feel really good about this? Victor asked. For some reason, I feel really good. He took a deep breath. Dave looked over at Jennifer. Emily would have really liked this one, he told her. Jennifer nodded. Yes, she would. Thank you for listening to part one of Near Death, a rainy day investigation on the Written by Rich Hosick podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you've enjoyed the audio version of this novel and stay tuned for more chapters in this thrilling paranormal mystery in the coming weeks. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app or download these episodes on Audible. Give me a like or five stars and a quick review. And most importantly, share Near Death and my weekly audio short stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosek. 
Give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon. And follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, After Life, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.